1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, Israel is once again repentant, and God raises up Jephthah to deliver them from the Ammonites. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 10, verse 15. Once again, that's Judges chapter 10, verse 15.
2: verse 15, Judges 10. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, we have sinned. Do thou unto us whatever seems good unto you. Deliver us only, we pray you, this day. And then look at verse 16. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. They accepted the consequences. They said, "We have sinned." In other words, Lord, this isn't your fault. And see, that's the problem sometimes when people make their confession to God. You know, and like, God, you know, you know, you know, you know, know I want to do this. You know, you know, I don't want to be this way. And and Lord, you know, can you just please help me? Can I translate that for you? It's not really my fault, God. It's yours. Now I know you're probably not thinking that when you're saying it, but that's what you're saying, and it shows a fundamental problem in here. When I'm doing that, it shows a fundamental problem in here. But I've not really repented yet. I've never really accepted the consequences of my actions. When they say we have sinned, the word sin there, it means we bear the blame. We deserve what's happening to us. So, Lord, you do unto us whatever seems good unto you. The word there, good, means what is morally right. Lord, you don't ever mess up. You don't ever sin. So you do whatever you think you need to do with us. But it's morally right. We trust that you don't fail like we do. We're in this mess. We did it to ourselves. This isn't your fault, God. We're returning to you on your terms. So whatever you think is right, do it. We're not asking for blessings. The only thing we're pleading with you is we are in a hot mess right now. And can you just rescue us from our oppressors? That's all we ask, even though we don't deserve anything. And then to follow that up, by finally getting rid of all the idols, can I tell you something? That's a confession. That's a prayer. That's a response that will get another response from the Lord. <laughs> God will never just sit there and go, "Yeah, I don't know." There's times I do that with people. People like they're starting to change and they're starting to try to go a different direction and they may even apologize and stuff. But party is going. Yeah, I don't. Know. I'm not ready to trust you just yet. That's not how the Lord is at all. Too often, we say we'll return to God, but we still demand our terms. Or we get upset when God doesn't respond the way we want. Well, I started going back to church, God. Why, why has everything gotten better? Start praying, reading my Bible again. How come things haven't gotten better? Well, God doesn't work that way. That's, that's just a new legal relationship with him. It's pride. And pride, man, pride gets in the way of so many things that God wants to do in our lives. Can I share something with you? Here's how messed up the enemy is and how messed up he can get us sometimes. Do you know that God is not intimidated by any of your failures, any of your sin? Do you realize that? God's not up in heaven going, okay, things are looking good. This whole Middle East thing's kind of weird, checking out some of the problems in the world. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, my goodness, what did Will just do? Gabriel, what is going on? I have no clue how we're going to handle this. God is not intimidated by my sin. He's not up in heaven. Just going, I don't know how to handle this. God is not intimidated by your sin. He's not scratching his head going, I don't know what to do about this one. I've had some weird ones. Cain, that was a real ringer, you know. And That old Joab guy. God's not intimidated by your sin. In Psalm 103, it's one of my favorite psalms in the whole Bible. And it talks about that. It says in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger plenteous in mercy he won't always chide he's not always going to be upset with us neither will he keep his anger forever he's not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities praise god for that for as the heaven is high above the earth so great is his mercy towards them that fear him as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us Like a father, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fears him. Why? Because he knows, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. The greatest lessons I ever learned was from Pastor Chuck's assistant pastor, Romaine. He said, you know, God expects you to do one thing, fail. He knows that's going to happen. That's why Jesus came. He loved us so immensely that he wouldn't let our failures get in the way of our relationship. Now, here's where it's so messed up, okay? That's the truth, but here's where it's so messed up. Satan gets us to focus on our past or current struggles with sin. He's always bringing it up. And then we make it an issue between us and God. Now, it's not an issue for God, All right. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it tells us, it says, This then is a message which we have heard of him, and we declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we're lying, and we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, guess what? We have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The phrase there cleanses is in the present tense, it means it's just continually washing us over and over and over again. So if we say we don't have sin, we're just deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, well, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There are three things there that are no bueno. One is walking in darkness. The other one is claiming we have no sin. That we, well, no, I didn't do, I didn't do anything wrong. And then saying we have not sinned, that we justify it. Those are the three things that are no bueno. Those are the three things that will get in your way of your relationship with God. So if the enemy comes to me, and, and here he is, and he tries to get me to focus on how God, I can't talk to God because of my failures. The Lord never says that there. Not one of those three is listed there as the no bueno. Instead, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, His blood is continually washing us. We have fellowship with each other. We're still in fellowship with each other. We're still in fellowship with Him. So what's the point? God's not intimidated by my sin. I need to come to Him with it. I need to bring it to Him and go, Lord, blew it. blew it. Completely blew it. Own it. I know this is what I deserve, but I'm coming to you because, Lord, it's the only place I can bring it. It's the right place to bring it. And so... The enemy tries to get us focused on keeping the thing from him or trying to fix it on our own or trying to justify it somehow. And when all those are the things that get us in trouble. There's a song written by a good band and called The Waiting, and they wrote a song called uh, Look At Me. And the chorus goes like this. It says, I love the way you look at me, seeing the bride beneath the harlot's skin, the virtue underneath the sin. I love the way you look at me, and the way you say your vows. And it's a beautiful song. It talks about a, basically a guy who wakes up in the morning, he sees the beautiful sunshine coming through the window, and he's laying there in his bed, and he's going, I'm, I'm ugly, I'm horrible, I'm, I'm wicked. And that the Lord's there to greet him in the morning with new mercies, and to fellowship with him. That's the Lord. He's not scared off by your sin. He's not intimidated by it. He has answers for it. And this is what gets a response And you're crying out to him and going, Lord, no, it's wrong. And and turning around, but Lord, I need you near to me. I want you. Lord, how can he not respond to that? That's what he wants. He wants us. So walk in the light like Israel does here the second time, you know, in Judges 10, where they they say, Lord, whatever you want, we just want to be back with you. Whatever you do to us, we don't care. We just want to be back with you. And they get rid of all their idols. That's what we need to do, because whenever you do that, he's going to show you mercy, because his heart for you is bigger than any sin you could commit. Look at God's reaction. It says, and his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Isn't that powerful? God's soul? Like, what does that mean? God doesn't have a soul. He's not a person like us, but the word soul there, it means the essence of your being, his heart his heart was broken. The word "they're grieved, it means when you can no longer bear something. It's so awful, so hard, you can no longer handle it. He said, I can't bear it anymore. Do you know how many times that phrase is in scripture where the Lord, they're getting what they deserve everything's horrible, but he looks down and just goes, I can't take it anymore. And he does something to intervene. Now, here's the kicker. Knowing that, knowing that about the Lord, yet he doesn't intervene when his beloved son, who has been with him for all eternity, never sinned, never failed, did everything that pleased him, is dying on a cross for our sin, and he doesn't intervene so we can be saved. How big is God's love for you? How big is God's heart for you? Israel's messed up, but it's his mess. They're his people. And so he decides to intervene. This is why it's just absurd to think we can earn God's blessings, we can earn God's favor, because God's just looking for any excuse in the book to bless you, looking for any reason he can bless you. The only thing that gets in the way is stubborn pride. Now, God doesn't speak to Israel about his breaking heart for them and his plans to rescue them yet to stop this mess that they're in. But things are getting pretty heated with the Ammonites. And so verse 17, it says, then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And so the children of Israel, they said, we can't just lay down again. We got to go fight them. And so they had assembled themselves together and encamped in Mispah, So they're kind of on different sides of the Transjordan there. And the people, the princes of Gilead, they said one to another, what man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, unlike the Midianites, the Ammonites were not nomadic. They had a land. Their capital city is the modern day city of Ammon in Jordan. That's where their land was. And so the Ammonites didn't set up camp in Israel when they would invade. They'd come, invade, take what they wanted and took it back home. So they would oppress Israel from a distance. So now they're back. They're back for another invasion, back to take a bunch of stuff, back to put them under the oppression again. But this time the Israelites say we're gonna fight, but they have a problem. God hasn't raised up a judge to lead them this time. So they decide to entice someone with the promise of rule. Decide who's gonna fight for us. Well, whoever he is, he can rule over us. He'll be the head. And so even in repentance, even though Israel's in a better place, they've still fallen so far from God's word Judges were not supposed to rule, they were to lead, and there's a big difference. Leadership doesn't require a title, it requires service. But in their desperation, they turned to what they've known for the last 60 years, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, and Jair, judges who acted like kings. And so, in chapter 11, we're going to find out that the man that God's going to raise up, that's what they're going to look for. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, You shall not inherit our father's house, for you are the son of a strange woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah who went out with him. Now, this is taking us back in time before the Ammonite invasion. This man named Jetha was born from a man named Gilead, who lives in the land of Gilead. Now, you could usually assume if you live on the street that is named after you, that you're probably a pretty important individual. This guy Gilead is the son of Manasseh, who this land was named for. This is one of the most influential families in the nation. And so, Gideon, he was a mighty man of valor. He was the best of the best, an elite soldier among the tribe of Manasseh. However... It says he was the son of a prostitute. He was illegitimate. Now, Jephthah is likely the oldest son of Gilead, likely from his father's younger days, because it mentions later that he's got a wife and he has sons, and they cast him out. So, successful men with questionable origins tend to be looked down on by those with power. And so, when everybody gets older, these sons who are born after Jephthah become concerned about how his elder brother's status would affect their inheritance. And so when they grew up, they said unto him, they thrust him out, which means they banished him. And they said, you shall not inherit our father's house for you are the son, King James says, of a strange woman. That's a little harsh, it just means of a different woman. Now, you have to ask the question, how is that Jephthah's fault? He didn't have a say in it. And you know, Gilead, his father, had at least done the right thing by claiming Jephthah and giving him the best life possible but you know, it wasn't about fault. It was about greed. You see, everything, position, influence, wealth, in Israel was tied to the land. And land was tied to what? Inheritance. Every family had the land that was inherited to them. And even if you had to sell that land because you got into debt, it would always revert back to its original owner after certain periods of time. So the land was important. So, these guys didn't want to share any land with him, and they were worried he would get the top portion of land when dad died. And so they banished him. Thus, with no family, Jephthah would have no land. He would have nowhere to live and no means to provide for himself. So, what does Jephthah do? I've heard it said that adversity brings out the best in us. I don't think that's true. I think adversity just shows what we really are. And here Jephthah shows that he's got some flaws. Because instead of turning to the Lord, Jephthah turned to himself. And what he knew best? Hand of war. So verse 3 says, Jephthah fled from his brothers. We're going to learn later on why he fled. He may have been an elite soldier, but he's not just opposing a few brothers. There was others who were against him. So that's not wrong, running away to be safe. What came next was It says, he dwelt in the land of Tob. Tob is on the border between Syria and Ammon at the very fringe of the eastern Israeli territories. It's about as far east as you can go and still be in Israel at this time. But here's the bad part. There were gathered vain men to Jephthah, and they went out with him. Now, to go out with him means he was already doing something. And that phrase, to went out, it means he became abandoned. So, These vain men, the word vain men means people of bad moral character, troublemakers, scoundrels, other men who had no place in society. Now, unlike Jephthah, they were in that state because of choices they'd made. But they come out and find out he's living off, ripping other people off, and they become this gang of bandits on the borders. who That's how they survive. Listen, no matter how much you've been wronged, Responding to evil by doing evil is evil any way you shake it out. Jephthah could have cried out to the Lord. He could have lived a godly life in exile. Would that have been hard? You bet it would have been hard. But he could have made a difference in the lives of those men who came to him instead of lead them into further evil. You say, well, that's asking a lot. That's what David did in the exact same situation. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it tells us about David, that when he had to flee from Saul, had to flee his family, leave everything behind, he fled to a cave. 1 Samuel 22, 1 says, David, therefore, departed from there, from, at that time he had fled from Saul and went into the Philistines, he departed from there and escaped to the cave Adullam. He just stayed there. Didn't rip anybody off, didn't, didn't become a bandit. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard about it, they went down there to him. They visited him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented, everybody that hated the government, everyone that was, had overdue taxes, everyone that was in trouble they came to David because they had nowhere else to go. Not exactly cream of the crop. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. These men, these guys were behind on their taxes, hated their government, felt like they were taken advantage of by society. They ended up becoming what are known as the Mighty men of Israel, champions of the people, respected and loved by all as examples of what a real Israelite is supposed to be. Listen, being a Christian. It means embracing the doing of hard things, even when it's not fair. Now, as I said, this all happens to Jephthah before the Ammonites come, verse 4. And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war. They invaded Israel, made war against Israel. And it was so, now we're getting to present time, back to chapter 10. It was so that when the children of Ammon invaded Israel this time, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. The tribal leaders, they come to him, verse 6, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. Come be our military commander. Desperate times call for desperate measures. This guy might be an illegitimate son of a harlot, but he's one of the best soldiers we've ever had, one of the most elite soldiers we've had, and he's survived in horrible circumstances for years. So despite his questionable origins and his current life of banditry, he's their best hope of victory. And and I always picture kind of them walking into the, the lair you know, Jephthah's at the table playing poker with the guys, and they come in with their pitch. They're desperate. They're looking for anybody who can get them out of this mess because God hasn't raised anybody up. Verse 7, Jephthah said unto them, I was kind of picturing him with a cigar. Probably not true. Did you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Why do you not come to me now that you're in distress? Those are familiar words, aren't they? Didn't God just say that to the nation? Ha, interesting. Now, this gives us background too, that when Jephthah's brothers tried to kick him out, he did fight it through the Israeli legal system. He took his case to the highest courts in the land, to these very elders. But they rejected him and banished him. That's why he had to flee. Jephthah wasn't just rejected by his family. He was rejected by his entire nation. Now, there's a question on whether God raised Jephthah up or Israel just picked a leader because it doesn't say God raised him up. And yet we saw the Lord's heart broke and that he wanted to raise up a leader. And when we see that Jephthah's words parallel the Lord's words to the nation, now you're desperate. Now you want me. Why'd you reject me in the first place if you value me so highly? Well, that can't be coincidence in my opinion. I personally think God did raise Jephthah up. And that's why Israel couldn't find any other person to lead them. God had said his heart was broken for their oppression when they repented. So there's no reason to think that God wouldn't help, even if Jephthah was a man of questionable character. So the elders, they respond by saying to Jephthah, verse 8, Therefore, that's why we're turning to you now. We were wrong. We shouldn't have done that. That's why we're coming to you now. We've changed our minds. And then they say, in fact, we don't just want you to be our commander, we want you to be our ruler Therefore, we turn again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. At that point, Jephthah falls out of his chair, drops his cigar, drops his cards. Jephthah said unto the men of Gilead, literally how it goes, Me? Be your head? If you bring me home again to fight against the children of Israel and the Lord delivers them to me, you're going to do that? The elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, "The Lord be witness between us, if we do not sow according to what you've just said." You could tell by Jephthah's answer that he longed to be back home. He longed to be accepted by his people. He may not have done the best job given his circumstances, but he still wanted good things. The fact that he credits the Lord as the only way that they could win proves this. When the Lord delivers them, but can he trust these people who failed him before? They said, Lord, be witness, which means God, hear your case. God, judge us if we don't fulfill our word. That's about the strongest promise you can give somebody in Israeli culture. So Jephthah agrees, verse 11. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. They had some type of ceremony where he officially became their leader. And Jephthah uttered his commitments to them in all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So here we see Israel has repented. They're trying to do things the right way by including the Lord in everything they do now. And Jephthah is all aboard that train. Was Jephthah the best choice for leader? He's clearly flawed. But you know what this shows us? It shows us God can use anybody, even someone who's made bad decisions in the past, even someone who's been rejected by everyone else. And you know what that means? It means God can use you. <laughs> he use me. Listen, whatever your past, however you've done wrong or however you've been wronged, you can still walk with the Lord moving forward. Will you? Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be those who make excuses for why we don't walk with you. Truth is, Lord, we've all got a history and it's for all who sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Lord, if you can save us, well, Certainly there's grace to use this as well. So we don't want to listen to those lies of the enemy anymore. We want to come to you, leave all that behind and say, Lord, no more excuses. I just want to follow you. I just want to obey you. I just want you. I want to be where you want me to be. So here I am, Lord. Take me and spend me for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.